Whereas I think that, uh, you know, and whereas a lot of shows that are sort of mainstream successes on television have been uh, really, really well received and are like some of the best television shows that have ever been made. And that's the kind of dip, but there's still loads of shit on television. <laughs> mm, oh, absolutely. It, it's not like everyone's just kind of like saying, you know, oh, everything on TV is great, you know. The keeping up with the Kardashians is a great dissection of the vacu- vacuousness of celebrity. I mean, it kind of is, in that that's what it's depicting. But I don't think that's what they're trying to do. <laughs> yeah. But it's not intended it's, to be art. Yeah, it's also worth pointing out as well that I think uh, people's perspective on this is slightly warped by the fact that this year we've had um, Breaking Bad coming to an end uh, we've had uh, an amazing season of Mad Men we've had an amazing season of Game of Thrones um, we've had uh, Arrested Development come back Netflix being very very big doing a lot of things um, whereas in the film world there's been a lot of very high profile flops um, and I think that and like more so than there is normally I think there was some weird statistic I read the other day that this summer has had like four or five of the biggest flops of all time in it um, and I think that perhaps people's perspective is slightly warped, given the current climate. And also, even a film like Man of Steel, which did really, really well, was so indifferently um, uh, responded to by fans. You know, it had such middling reviews, and everyone was just kind of like, not really fussed. But it still made like two hundred and ninety million dollars. Mm. Yeah, but um, well. You know, we think we've kind of made our feelings clear, but obviously that's not going to be the end of our little chat because there's probably a greater depth we can go to. Um, the 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 main um, crux of uh, Mr. Stuart Heritage's point in the Guardian's piece, the uh, the second piece of the two, which says TV is better than film, he puts the first point of his ten uh, at the doorstep of that old chestnut long-form storytelling by saying that TV is better than film because it can tell a story in 60 hours rather than two. Now, that's just a formal observation, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like saying that all novels are inherently superior to all short stories, which is Mm. nonsense, because I've read a Dan Brown book... And it is not better than any one Raymond Carver short story. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think there's something to be said for the punchiness of what a film can do in in 90 minutes. A film that's really good and, like, you know, it can be like a low-budget sort of film like I watched In a World the other night, which was really good and was really funny and really took you on a journey and took you into this weird subculture of voiceover artists and had pretty much everyone who's ever been on Comedy Bang Bang in it and you know in it but it had a lot of really really cool things about it it was a really really cool and interesting film and it was just pretty much I think it was almost bang on 90 minutes and it did a huge amount of stuff in that time or on an entirely different scale like Gravity is 91 minutes long and that film you know has barely an ounce of fat on it and it's just a really propulsive amazing immersive experience and you know i think that you know neither of those films would really work if you wanted to stretch them out to um 60 hours in fact gravity would be interminable if you tried to stretch that premise out to um into television that's a film that's that's a story that only works you know as a cinema unless unless you make the tv series that every week sandra bullock ends up in another 
space shuttle <laughs> that gets destroyed. Mm. Yeah, and then you got to start asking some questions about the space program she's part of. <laughs> you know what I mean? And what their budget is, really. Um, there's also, in the Converse argument, uh, in the David Cox article, and I don't want to call David Cox a contrarian, but he is. Um, he's often to himself. Uh, he often uh, writes articles that disagree with the point he made only weeks before. Um, but yeah, he, he makes the point, and this is crazy, This I can't believe a professional journalist has brought this up, that um, because Behind the Candelabra was on TV, um, somehow that's being bandied about as an example of why TV's better than film. But it's a film that was just shown on TV. Yeah, I think that's a really bizarre thing, because cause Behind the Candelabra is is a feature film. It's just that it couldn't find anyone who would actually distribute it. Mm. You know, and, and it was only because every major studio balked at it that um that it, it was eventually, you know, HBO said, you know, we'll give you ten million dollars to make this film and, you know, and it was a big success on T V. But that's not like it's not like Steven Soderbergh just kind of turned around and said, you know, okay, the future is in T V he was just kind of forced into that he was forced into that um mode by the fact that, you know, everyone else he went to was kind of too craven to actually take a chance on a story that was interesting and that, you know, had, like, big-name stars attached to it and would seem like it had a really good shot at actually turning a profit, and which actually did have a theatrical run in many places. You know, it, it was played in theatres in England, and that's where I saw it, and I, I thought it worked really well on a big screen. Hmm. And it's not like it was an episodic piece or anything. It was... It's a film, right? And I mean, it kind of um, perhaps feeds off the point of, I mean, last time around we were talking about distribution and uh, our starting point for that conversation was the Kevin Spacey keynote speech that he gave at the television festival, the uh, the Edinburgh Scot- the Edinburgh Television Festival, that he said that if you watch a film on your phone, is that still a film? If you watch TV on your, uh, on your iPad, is that still television? Uh, and like are the terms just arbitrary at this point? Yeah, I think it's becoming more and more arbitrary, in, in definitely in terms of like television, because people watch it on so many different formats that it really, it like the idea of watching television is is kind of almost a misnomer at this point. Uh, particularly in terms of like the the amount of stuff you can stream Netflix on is yeah huge. It, there's so many different formats that thinking it as TV as opposed to just general content seems really limiting to me. Mm. And that was Spacey's point, wasn't it? That no matter what it is, it's just content. Absolutely. Which, yeah, which is, uh, yeah, I suppose the kind of where it's going, really. Um, do you think that, um, again, the perspective has been warped by the fact that television at the moment, uh, especially uh, US drama, should we say, uh, US cable drama, if you want to kind of narrow it down, you know, a little further, um, is on such a remarkable run. Yeah, I mean, it's had, we've had, depending on where you set the, the start date for it, I think most people would kind of put it when The Sopranos started in 98 or 99, or, or maybe from when Oz started, because that's kind of the grandfather of a lot of this stuff. You know, we're about we're 14 or 15 years into this run. But, you know, I think it's it's something that's kind of gradually reached the point, this kind of saturation point, because 
for many years, I think you'd probably say there were maybe one or two really great cable dramas. Like, you know, you had The Sopranos and The Wire and Deadwood all kind of run at the same time, and but there was there was not a lot of other stuff on other channels. And then as the other networks became bigger, like FX became a big player and, and developed their really broad roster of interesting shows and then AMC stepped up to the plate and Showtime and all this sort of stuff. Suddenly there's an absolute sort of deluge of this mm. sort of stuff. And you know, it you you really do feel spoiled for choice and you really do feel as if you've not got time to catch up on all of these things. <laughs> yeah. Um I was just kinda of thinking that like if only you could make a TV and a film version of the same thing, then you would you would maybe be able to possibly start having this discussion properly but there is something i can think of which is kind of quite quite kind of near to that idea which is um the film saving private ryan came out and then two years later the miniseries on hbo band of brothers came out now obviously the film saving private ryan was directed by steven spielberg and the Band of Brothers was executive produced by Steven Spielberg, um, but also they share uh, the exact same aesthetic, the same feel, the same. But they all they take place in the same universe essentially, um, and yet I massively prefer Band of Brothers as a look into that world to Saving Private Ryan. Do you think that that's an example out on its own of like where television perhaps has expanded? the universe or, or or the world of a film yeah i think because the the advantage to something like the like band of brothers in compar- in comparison to saving private ryan is i think you're a little less beholden to kind of moving the plot along in like a way that's kind of really exhilaratingly exciting not not that you're making stuff that's boring but that you're not kind of trying to hit necessarily the same beats you can have just like there's lots of moments in Band of Brothers that have nothing to do with the 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 plot of these guys like training and then going to Europe and and traveling through the war zone it's mainly just about the rigors and the the specifics of everyday life if you are if you're in a um you know part of the the parachute regiment and i think that that is that's the sort of thing that that sort of texture is something that is you you occasionally get in films. I think something like um, Paths of Glory has the Stanley Kubrick film has lots of little moments like that where it's not really about you know the the guys going over the top and it's not about Kirk Douglas coming in to defend them. It's just about the daily lives of all these slightly minor characters. But in television, like that's everything. Like for a really good TV show, you just have lots of moments of people. Ex-beat sort of living their lives in this shared universe, and you know I think that's why Band of Brothers works so well. Is you really feel as if you get to know the characters as people, whereas I think Saving Private Ryan has some of that, but it's mainly just okay. These guys have gone to Europe. They've got to find this guy. You know they found the wrong guy, and he's Nathan Fillion. <laughs> <laughs> they need to move on and find the next guy. You know, and and so it's a bit more. It's that's more plot heavy, whereas you know the the. Band of Brothers has some plot, but it's mainly about character and atmosphere. And it's interesting that um, Saving Private Ryan is not adapted from a book, but um, uh, Band of Brothers is. With given um, David Simon's assertion and his kind of revelatory uh, approach to adapting 
uh, well, not adapting, but making television, as in if you're going to do episodic television, why not try and do it like it's a novel unfolding week to week without having to stop and explain everything and kind of, you know, re-establish everything every episode. Do you think that now, given that idea, uh, television is perhaps uh, being seen as a more um, appropriate medium through which to adapt a book? Yeah, I think that there is... in. In some cases, I think it's it's viewed more as kind of a nice jumping-off point for telling the story of a book. Because if you look at something like Dexter only really followed the first book in that series and then kind of jumped off and became its own thing and kind of became unbelievably terrible by the end of it. Or um, True Blood, you know, kind of doesn't really follow the plot of the books it's based on. But it's it's a, it's an interesting case where people look at these things and think, oh, I can take this premise and these characters and just tell my own stories with them and kind of really experiment with it but i think it's the perfect format for like game of thrones which i could not imagine working as like a seven film series Mm. because those books are so wildly ungainly (laughs) and they're so huge that i think you would really struggle like even if you had made each of them three hours long or four hours long and peter jackson was there just kind of like wanking off screen like <laughs> making them you know i think it would really struggle to encapsulate anywhere near the level of like of detail and you know you'd have to cut so many of these like great characters and great stuff and you you'd also have less room to maneuver which i think is the the thing with the game of thrones as a tv show is it sticks to the sort of the the basic plot but they invent so much stuff and they move stuff around and they're very creative with how they have adapted it Whereas I think with a, with a film, you don't have that luxury. You've kind of got to cram it all in and you know for enough screening times a day. Um, here's an interesting um, poser. Um, we had to endure a few years ago um, uh, Zack Snyder's uh, adaptation of Watchmen, which wasn't particularly good uh, for many, many reasons. Um, and I mean, we could probably do a whole show on its own as to why his adaptation of Watchmen wasn't particularly good but it's kind of um, uh, interesting that in that film's long and troubled development Terry Gilliam said he wanted to do it but he said the only way he could think of doing it was as a 10 or 12 part TV miniseries now given that the comic book is uh, divided into 12 exact chapters uh, do you think that that's something that would have worked better for Watchmen, have it being on TV, or are we just maybe being uh, have it? Uh, is my perspective on this warped by the fact that Zack Snyder got there first? I think it probably would have worked better, but I still don't think it's. I think Alan Moore went into Watchmen making something that couldn't be adaptable. Mm. I think he wanted to make something that was a comic and that was a commentary on how comics work and which was structured in such a way that it could only exist as a comic and I think that's why the film version feels so um, the film version feels so superficial and why it feels like it just it's just kind of plodding and hitting all the various beats and doesn't feel special in the way the comic does because mm. the comic feels com the comic is revelation is revelatory. It's an amazing work, uh, but I think it's an amazing work because you're reading it as in a particular format, and then a lot of that doesn't really transfer 
uh, even though you think it would because it's a visual medium and you think it's easier to transfer a visual medium than you know to adapt a novel you know where you have to kind of invent everything from scratch mm. uh, yeah I think that I think that my view on it is is severely jaundiced by um, by that fact that Snyder got there first but also I remember when I read Watchmen and obviously uh, no matter what time you kind of uh, discover that book there was probably always a film of it in the works <laughs> for some stage or another um, and I just remember thinking I don't need to see a film of this I really don't what's it going to add it's only going to it's you know, it's only really going to uh, I don't need it brought to life visually like you would a novel because it's there you know I don't need it I don't need it yeah and I think you could also say the same thing even though it's a way worse book than Watchmen. I think you could say that about 300. Is like the 300 film is. If you read the comic of 300, the film is completely redundant. All it does is add sound, <laughs> and that's the only real difference, because you know Zack Snyder obviously adheres a little too strictly to um, the look of the stuff he adapts in in terms of comics. Mm. Um, in Mr. Heritage's article about why TV is better than film, um, he makes a point which is, I think, a little bit crazy. Uh, it says the biggest film stars of tomorrow are on TV now, and the uh, the kind of uh, uh, evidence, the examples he cites, are Bruce Willis, obviously being on Moonlighting, um, Will Smith, <laughs> being in Fresh Prince of Bel Air, Robin Williams, and George Clooney. Um, that point's quite stupid, isn't it? Yeah, because in all of those examples, they're they're from an era when TV was something you escaped. You know, the whole the whole point of like if you were a TV actor was everyone was wanting to be a film star. Mm. Whereas I think now, it's it may be the case that a lot of the best actors are on TV. Like not all of them, a lot of really great actors are all in film still, but you know I think there are a lot of really fantastic actors who just basically have realised. Certainly, I think you find a lot of the case of a lot of actresses. A lot of the really good parts are on television, and they're not really, not that many interesting ones show up in film. And I think, but I think that, you know, if you look at the stars of some of the really big shows of recent years. I think, you know, like, Brian Cranston's never going to be a big movie star. You know, he's always going to be a character actor who appears in small roles or occasionally headlines like a small independent film. Uh, Idris Elba and Dominic West haven't really gone on to superstardom from being in The Wire. Mm. James Gandolfini obviously died very young, but he, he didn't he didn't immediately become, like, start headlining films as soon as The Sopranos ended or even when The Sopranos was on. He still basically had the same career that he had when the, before The Sopranos died, which was that he was a character actor who showed up in things. And, you know, I don't think... like I mean, like, I know Aaron Paul's got Need for Speed coming out, which is a video game adaptation, and I don't think that's going to break him as, like, a huge star. Um, I, think, I think in a lot of cases what you see is that the, the, the TV stars of today become the TV stars of tomorrow, which is, mm. like... People like Timothy Oliphant, you know, he was on Deadwood, he was really good on Deadwood, then he got Justified, and he's really great on Justified. Um, Idris Elba went from The Wire, and then he started doing Luther, and, you know, did really great work there. And I think that's the sort of thing you see, is they just kind of graduate to different shows where they get to do different things. And I think that many of them probably prefer that to, like, trying to eke out a career and try and make it as a movie star. 
Yeah, I think that's one thing that's definitely changed is that 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 perception that once you've done TV you have to go to film to be a success and also the 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 opposite of that being true is that like if you're a film actor and you end up on television then you've failed those things that's kind of changed now if you look at the if you look at the amount of um kind of a-list stars that have been in uh, television seasons or series in the last few years um it's great and not uh, in a lot of cases not just kind of cameos um you know kind of meaningful parts um then it's the opposite's kind of true as well that what used to be thought of as if you were a film star and then you were doing television your career was over uh, that's not true yeah i mean you, we were talking earlier about behind the candelabra and there you've got Mike, uh, michael douglas and, and matt damon kind of sh- showing up in a tv movie but again that's in a very that's within a very specific context but you know matt damon was a regular on 30 rock for a year you know he he played liz lemon's pilot boyfriend and he's in like seven or eight episodes and he was in um he like and he does stuff like he just shows up on the Colbert report to dance in a box of money for like no other reason than because he really likes Stephen Colbert and he likes the show and you know you see that a lot is guys just show up and it's always it's always kind of heralded as something that's to be really excited like this year um there were two sitcoms the Michael J Fox show and the crazy ones where the whole big selling point was hey these guys are returning to TV and it wasn't like shamefaced it wasn't like these guys have like just fallen on hard times and they need the money it's just mm. kind of like hey they're coming back isn't this cool and i think that that is a, that's a big shift in the perception is that people think that you know doing tv is not a sort of a dirty word anymore um do you think that the it's this all this kind of conversation is going to kind of go away when the when the bubble bursts of this uh, tv's golden age or do you think that tv's been um, kind of irreversibly changed by this little uh, this kind of boom so that's a very hard one to say I do think that the bubble will eventually burst but there will be there will have been so many good shows that have been made that it there will just be this momentum that will keep it bubbling under at a certain level of quality I think I think it's it's not like you know New Hollywood in the 70s when the executive stepped in and tried to um cork it and like you know make it all blockbustery and uh, in the 80s i'm not i don't think it's going to come to the point where the executives step in and say okay stop making all this good stuff i think it might be in a few years we'll reach a point where you can't point to like the one truly great show that's on tv but i think you might be able to point to like the five or six really really good shows that are all on tv and that are all like really worth your time and then like a whole strata of shows of varying levels of quality that kind of trickle down and then after a few years another great show will come along and it will just keep going and going and going whereas i think something like film i think that it that it takes so long for the film industry to kind of turn around and to kind of for for sort of genuine change and quality to kind of bleed through that i think you know their rough patch will will last a little longer um and we'll probably so that it will we'll still have a long period where mainstream cinemas kind of disappointing and and uninteresting a lot of the time, and TV is just more fruitful and fun. Yeah, um, when we were at Docfest, um, we went to see the um, editing masterclass um, delivered by Walter Merch, uh, multi-Oscar winner Walter Merch, editor of some good stuff. 
he's done he's done bits and bobs, hasn't he? That have that have kind of worked out. He kind of invented the concept of sound design. Um, generally knows what he's talking about. But one of the thing he said in the um, lecture, he just said that um, mainstream American movies have ceded the intellectual middle ground to um, cable television. Uh, is that an oversimplification or is that true? Uh, I think it's probably very true. I think that if you look at a lot of the movies that were really, really great in the 70s, a lot of them are sort of, they're usually cop dramas or, you know, things that have the veneer of being sort of a generic thing or or they are, they're just kind of, some they're just kind of like dramas. Like I watched um, Save the Tiger, which was the film, one of the films that Jack Lemmon won one of his Oscars for, which is just a film about the day in the life of a, of a salesman who's, a little corrupt and is trying to just kind of keep his business afloat and that's the sort of thing where you watch it and you think I really struggle to see a mainstream studio like ponying up 40 million dollars to make a film like that nowadays whereas I could easily see that running for four seasons on AMC mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and, and it's, it's those kind of stories of complex conflicted not necessarily likeable people who go through struggles and are, are trying to find their way in the world seem more to kind of crop up on television than they do on you know cinema screens anymore. I think a lot of the the middle the, a lot of the middle ground has definitely been ceded to television. Um, do you think that um, the we talk about kind of that career uh, trajectory of. Uh, the idea of the career trajectory of you know going one way or the other is has now changed that perception. Um, do you think that's ever going to be true of showrunners and directors? Do you think that uh, showrunners would ever want to go and do film, or do you think that that's you know it's such a specific thing to do that they're always going to stay on TV? Like someone like Vince Gilligan, I read an interview with him the other day that he's essentially had meetings in Hollywood and they've said you can you know do whatever the fuck you want but why would you want to do anything else other than TV? I think that there are some, there are definitely some showrunners who like to straddle the two divides. I know that Alan Ball, who created um, Six Feet Under and True Blood, he started out writing American Beauty, for which he won an Oscar, and he's directed films uh, since then. And I know that uh, David Chase has been very vocal about the fact that he only kind of fell into TV because he couldn't make movies. And you know he 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 channeled all his frustrations of all the films he wanted to make in the into the Sopranos, which was what kind of elevated it and made it so so rich and so good. And um, Matthew Weiner, who's uh, the the creator of Mad Men, has a film coming out next year, I think, that he's written and directed. So I think that I think for that generation of people who are sort of maybe in their 50s and 60s who grew up wanting to make films and then just kind of happen to end up in TV I think that they will want to do it because they think that's that's something they've always wanted to do but I think there will be a whole generation of people who are coming up now who grow up with the idea of the showrunner as this thing that's really that's, that has this like amazing control over a particular artistic vision and they'll just be like, why the hell would I ever want to make films when I can just tell a story over such a broad canvas? It's weird, isn't it, that you know some of the great directors of of uh, the seventies and kind of eighties and nineties started in TV, but with that opposite 
career trajectory in mind. You know, someone like Spielberg would, you know, direct episodes of Columbo and Jonathan Demme and uh, would do the same. Robert Altman is another one who started on TV. Um, and, you know, they were just getting... It was like the, something you got out of, exactly as the actors we were talking about earlier. And, you know, now that idea is, is not so crazy now. Well, it's, well, it seems crazy now, sorry. Yeah, I think... I think it's I think it's different for directors. I think directors probably still would rather um, would probably still rather make films than TV because I think unless you're like a series director who directs every episode, it's kind of uh, a very nomadic job. Like where you'll see someone who uh, just kind of like if you look at, at someone who is a prolific TV director, they'll direct like 30 episodes of TV in a year and it'll be spread across like 10 different shows. And while I'm sure that's an amazingly fun challenge, it's probably really stressful having to just kind of constantly be landing jobs. Whereas Mm. if you are a director with a reasonable degree of control over your theatrical career, then, you know, at least you've got a job for a year and, you know, you can maybe make your own projects happen. And but but you know showrunner I think showrunner is obviously a different such a different beast in that regard because you really are the boss and you really do control everything in a way that even kind of in a way that even directors don't on films because not only are you the the direct serving in the role as director and editor because you're assembling all the shows but you're also the the suit you're the guy who kind of makes all the decisions and. Can kind of, and can kind of be really bullish with executives about it. Do you think that um, someone like Ryan Johnson is challenging that assumption though? Because I mean, he is a director who is very much on the upswing of his career trajectory, um, but also he stops off to direct um, very striking, very important key episodes of Breaking Bad. Yeah, I think that he is someone who really demonstrates what having a a sort of a, 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 a someone who directs features come in can really bring to it because if you look at his episodes of, of Breaking Bad, particularly Fly, which is such a distinct and odd individual episode within that series run, it's so distinct and sort of its own little play, really. Um, I think that that's a really good example of what bringing someone in with that eye can can really bring to it but I think he seems to be someone who's really focused on doing features and then getting to come in and do Breaking Bad is or was just this kind of fun little sideline that he really enjoyed it didn't feel like he would he was on a trajectory where he thought okay I can just kind of do TV now I think for him it's more of a sideline yeah I mean we've seen in the last few years uh, Martin Scorsese and Michael Mann direct episodes of uh of TV shows, um, but in both of those cases, they were really just kind of tone setters, weren't they? Yeah, although in the case of Michael Mann, he was he also had the role of of reining in David Milch on luck, and and kind of keeping him away from the set so they could try and keep things on budget and on time. So he was a little more hands on than than Scorsese, but but in both cases, in terms of actually working as a director they were both there to kind of establish the mood and the visuals and the general sort of tone of of the series they weren't there necessarily as like the key creative force mm. I think it was I remember listening to an interview with uh, Mike Figgis who directed a couple of episodes of The Sopranos and he said he found directing The Sopranos incredibly liberating because um, there was no editorial responsibility so basically he turned up with the script did his thing he had to work very quickly 
and I mean, if if you uh, follow the career of Mike Figgis and read some of the books he's written, he's read a you know uh, written a, an excellent one about digital filmmaking, which I'd recommend anyone with a vague interest in filmmaking read. Um, he's you know he's obviously likes to try different things and he said he found it very 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 liberating the fact that he turned up he did the job and he got out and then months later he got to see what it looked like and how, what, how it fit with a part of the story and he said he completely uh, had his kind of perception of what a, a director can do on television changed because it's uh, serving an overall vision rather than being your own vision yeah, I think that um, Frank Damabont said much the same thing when he worked on The Shield, because he directed at least one episode of The Shield, although I get, I think he may have directed a couple more, and he said that he was it was amazingly invigorating to him, the idea of going in with this crew and like doing lots of handheld shooting and like doing this really down and dirty, really quick sort of thing where he couldn't fuss over everything, mm. and and that was the the impetus he had when he went to make the mist because when he made the mist he basically took the entire crew of the shield who were on hiatus and said okay i want to make this horror film i want to make it in as quick a time as possible and they shot it in like less than a month and he, he that was directly as a result of the fact that he had he had worked on the shield and seen how they do it and thought yes this is how i want to you know, I don't want to labour over a film for for ages. I want to just kind of do something really, really quick and really interesting. And that obviously then spirals into him developing The Walking Dead and being fired from The Walking Dead, and um, and um, setting up his own new show called I think Mob City, which is starting up soon. But yeah, he's a guy who's kind of made the switch from from film to television. Who again doesn't really seem to he no one's kind of viewing that switch for him as like a down step in his career it's just kind of a last it's at best at worst a lateral move yeah well someone like um joss whedon just nips between the two like it's you know a holiday home and his and his main residence yeah he seems to have really settled he into a nice groove now that he's suddenly directing unbelievably successful movies <laughs> yeah After yeah years of toiling <laughs> Yeah, I suppose that does make it easier to do what you want to do, really, doesn't it? Um, I suppose, like, to kind of wrap this up now, um, the probably the most exciting thing about this whole debate, as pointless as it is, even though it is fun to talk about, is that if film is currently, not in a trough, but, you know, in uh, maybe there are a few fallow years, and TV is, is kind of having the best time it's ever had, and doesn't it just make it exciting that that's going to one's going to force the other to be better. Yeah, I mean, you'd hope so. That's kind of what I, I, I would like, like, and that's why I think it's it's kind of a shame. We, uh, in that um, Kevin Spacey lecture that, you know, we talked about last time and that we talked a little bit about earlier, he talks about, you know, uh, going to listen to David Lean receive an award and talking about his vision for the future, and he's saying that the problem was that film companies do not respect writers and if we're not careful we'll lose all the good writers to television and I think and then he said and Kevin Spacey says and that is exactly what happened you know 20 years down the line mm. and I think that that is that is the main problem is that I think that a lot of the people who would have gone to film and would have really would have written great scripts and you know like Vince Gilligan famously wrote 
the original script of what of the film that eventually became Hancock with Will Smith and people talked about how that was a great unproduced script that sat around for years and was a really dark, really interesting take on the superhero genre and when it was released it was this really weird hodgepodge of partly dark and interesting take on the superhero genre but mainly kind of fairly stock um, superhero stuff. And I think that, you know, there you can see the, the problem, which is that they, they take these scripts and they twist them into something that's a little more palatable. Whereas I think on television, there's a re there seems to be a real desire for darkness in terms of drama, but also in terms of, like, comedy. I think that there's a lot more acerbic and weird and off-putting comedy on television and sort of niche stuff than you find in, in cinemas, which tends to be a little more homogenised. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I concur. Um, um, yeah, I think that we've done all right uh, debating these issues, Ed. Yeah, I think the, the just the important thing to say about this is that if you love film, that's great. If you love television, that's great. If you insist on kind of pitting them against each other, then I think that that just comes down to snobbery and being mm -hmm. a prick. Because... <laughs> Yeah, because that—that's what it comes off as to me when I see people on online just kind of constantly talking about how much better one is the other or denigrating the other. Is it just seems like like snobbery, rank snobbery, and it's the same on you know either side of the divide. And you know I think that it 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 speaks a little of sort of a certain insecurity if people are really really saying like oh television shit you know it's all cynical and commercialised like you know fuck films you know. Films are very cynical and very commercialised. Mm. They're both art forms and they're both capable of art, but they're both, both like also commercial entities. And I think it's really, really weird to, for people to kind of get to the point where they denigrate one art form for being for doing exactly the same sort of thing the other one does, instead of kind of setting them both aside and saying, "I'll enjoy my thing, you enjoy your thing." Yeah. Which I think is the, the the proper way to treat the whole thing. Yeah. So what we're saying really is, um, as much as the, you know things might go up and down in in terms of quality and general swathes of stuff, just stop being a prick. That's what we're saying to anyone. If if you're online and you're about to tweet something and you th you want to say, oh, I really enjoyed Breaking Bad. That was better than any film I've seen this year. Just don't. It's stupid. Don't you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's a, it boils down to bananas and avocados again. Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, we all know the answer to that um, because you can't make guacamole with bananas. And you can't make a banana split with an avocado. No, that would be fucking. This is this is our this is our ebony and. <laughs> yeah, but um, less racist. Um, so yeah, more timeless. More timeless. Um, <laughs> less racist. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah. Um, thanks everyone for tuning in and we hope that uh, we've not so much put the debate to bed we've just kind of said you know just it's all good don't worry about it um, which is the kind of laissez-faire attitude we have here at Shot Reverse Shot yeah it's very much like sort of 19th century industrialists hmm. in terms of the welfare state absolutely um, so yeah uh, I've always said that about you 
but yeah uh, we'll come back next time with something uh, we probably should do something slightly less relevant uh, I don't know what it will be but I'm sure it will be a lot of fun uh, if you like this uh, podcast then please give us a subscribe on iTunes uh, give us a little review if you like and rate it as well 5 stars please we accept no less um, so until our next uh, podcast it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me everyone uh, this is Ed again um, as uh, some of you know um, probably most of you don't uh, my younger sister Emma who was uh, a very important very dear person to me died earlier this week uh, she was a, a brilliant lovely wonderful person who really loved film and television and she was very supportive of me on this podcast so I wanted to pay tribute to her and uh, this episode is dedicated to her memory